Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Yuri Marchand, the co-founder and CEO of Wolf from Tel Aviv, Israel. Yuri and his team started building tools for creators in gaming to build apps around these games like League of Legends back in the early 2010s. Through the years, Yuri and his team have built a company that truly enables gaming creators to create, grow, and monetize their content. We'll now hear more about company building and culture and what Overwolf is now planning to do from Yuri himself. But before that, here's a few words from our sponsor. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hey, game developer, are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that elite game developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. And we're live. Hi, Yuri. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joachim. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. We're going to be having a good time talking about the topics today. First off, I wanted to go and ask you about Overwolf and your industry career. How did you get into gaming and to eventually become an entrepreneur and found Overwolf? First off, I was a gamer pretty much all my life. Uh, started around the age of six and then grew up playing video games. My favorite video game of all time, I think, back then was uh, Dune 2. That really got me into gaming. Yeah. And uh, since this was an important part of my life, after my graduation from the army and from university, as I was starting to think about what I'm going to do when I grow up professionally, an idea came up that I felt the industry is missing and I was missing myself with a couple of friends. And this is kind of how we started the company. But I think what got us into gaming is really just a passion and love for gaming and gaming being an important part of our lives. Yeah. Was it something that you had the entrepreneurial bug already was, or was it more like stars aligned that this is like something like, yeah. how, how did that happen? So I, as I grew up, I kind of always had ideas on like mini entrepreneurial things. So for example, on fifth and sixth grade, I was a DJ. Mm. So I kind of felt like 
there's no good music in parties and uh, someone needs to figure it out. I grew up in a relatively small town called Kochageya. Not too many people, not too many opportunities. You know, it's not like a big city where you can just pick up the phone and find a DJ. Yep. So I've done it with a few friends and I've, I've had a couple of other initiatives as I grew up, you know, had my own band at some point. Uh, so a couple of like entrepreneurial adventures at a young age. And so as I graduated, I think it kind of felt natural for me that I can, uh, with friends and with the right team, be able to build a profession for myself. So it, like that, then taking this kind of like startup angle, where did that come from? Because, you know, there's the startup thing where you bring in a group of people who can build stuff. Was it like early on that you were like looking at other companies, how they're doing things? How did you know how to take the first steps there? It actually starts with my first technological venture. When I was in the army, I had to stay for about seven years. I was a helicopter pilot through uh, CH-53s, like those big helicopters for search and rescue and special ops. Yep. I had a friend with me that flew Blackhawks, and we've done role together at the headquarters of the Air Force. Mm. And uh, right before we left the army, we had to do our psychometric test, which is the equivalent to the SATs just in Israel. So it's something that you got to go through before going to university and Based on your score, you can either get accepted to what you want to study or have to make compromises. And so we've done the preparations for the test while we were still in the Army. And that was a horrible experience because we didn't have a lot of time compared to our competitors who did just that full time. We had a day job as well. And we tried to look for technological solutions that are going to help us prepare for the test. And one of the things that felt like an opportunity for us was uh, vocabulary building. So you have to build your vocabulary both in Hebrew and English, like, you know, literature type vocabulary that's going to be richer. And the way to do that back in the day was with cards. Like you would yeah. write a bunch of cards and then the answer at the back of the card and you try and memorize the vocabulary. And we thought that we could build something as a software that it's going to be adaptable for you and it's going to be smart and you're not going to be going to waste your time on looking at words that you already know and, you know, all these features. And uh, we found this other friend that was in intelligence in the army. So he was a very talented coder. He actually studied in high school with my other co-founder. And we started this company called AppliCell. And the idea there was to help you build vocabulary for uh, academic tests. It was a super interesting journey in the sense that it taught us how to build consumer software. We just, you know, we started from scratch. We had some revenue, so we were able to actually sell software. We were able to learn what are different components of, uh, you know, building this. And it came from, you know, back then we were about 25, 26. As we graduated, you know, we joined the army when you're 18, seven years, so like 25, 26, depending on when exactly you joined relative to your date of birth. We weren't super young. And we've done some pretty complicated things in the army, which gave us the strength or the mental strength to, you know, believe that we can figure things out. And yeah. so after we've had this experience of building this first project, when I graduated from computer science, it was a lot easier for me say, hey, I already know how to build software. If I think there's, there's an opportunity, here's how you build a startup. I kind of already did that. Not to a great success, but you know, at least I learned the fundamentals. And then that provided me the tools to start doing it. That's really great. Can you talk about Overwolf and introduce the company? Like, What was the, the mission from the early days? When we started the company, we thought there's an opportunity to build a product that's going to be with me as I'm gaming and answer the different needs that I have while I'm gaming that are not the game itself. Mm. So for example, back in the day, we used to use uh, Skype a lot for communication. Yeah. And um, 10 years ago, when you tapped out of games, sometimes they would crash. 
and imagine you get an incoming call on Skype, but you can't answer, or you hear this new chat message and you can't check it out. It's pretty annoying. Mm. And so we decided to build a product that would have a bunch of features, Skype included, an in-game browser if we want to check out stuff online, walkthroughs, whatever, as well as some other features we were missing. And we thought that we would bake it all into the same product. And this was the idea at the beginning. That was the thesis on which we started the company. It took us a long time to figure out how to build uh, support for the things that we wanted for about 100 games, which was the number of games we supported when we first released the very clunky beta products at the summer of 2011. And it also took us a lot of time to build the right user experience for the Skype integration and for browser and game capture and Facebook integration and all the things we had back then. Right. So what ended up happening is that we released half-baked product to the market because we were close to our, the end of our runway. We had to release something. Uh, but this is how things started. At that point, we uh, struggled to get traction and uh, we pivoted between a gazillion ideas. And that took us all the way to mid-2013, where we basically ran out of money and had to figure out what we're going to do next. Mm-hmm. And we tried to think hard on what worked and what didn't. And the things that we felt worked were the need for such services. What didn't work is trying to do both, like trying to do both engine and apps. And then we've decided to pivot and just focus on building the engine and not the apps themselves. And this pretty much has been our journey since uh, mid-2013. For the listeners here, like what are the real learnings there from your early stages and like key takeaways? Like because anything that usually doesn't get talked about when you hear these startup stories, because like you, you can hear that, hey, then we pivoted, we did that, we did those things right. But were there like certain things that you learned there that you still think about? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first one is focus. We, back in the day, you know, a smarter decision would have been to focus on just one game, say World of Warcraft, and just one feature, say Skype integration. And then see if you can satisfy a rather small cohort of users that are going to get a lot of value from the product that you're providing. So, you know, back then there was TeamSpeak and Mumble and Ventrilo and a bunch of other clients. So the relevant audience were the folks using Skype mm. and playing World of Warcraft. And if for that audience we would have been able to build a great experience, just because of focus, we only need to support one game and there's only one feature that we're going to support, we would have been able to serve that group really, really well and then figure out how to scale it, whether it's through supporting more games or adding more services for a broader audience. Yeah. I think it's okay and it's even a good thing to have a very big vision for what, what it is that you want to build. But the big vision is becomes very risky when you confuse it with what you're going to do tomorrow. Yeah. So my first lesson is that the correlation between the vision to what you're going to do tomorrow is not a must. It actually sometimes could be really, really dangerous. And you need to focus on solving a very specific problem. So I think that's one. Yeah. The next one is validation. And it took us something like a little bit over a year and a half to release the first product to the market, which is way, way, way too long, especially in today's standards. And with the technology you have today, you can move a lot faster than that. And there are a lot of easy ways to validate even before writing code. But even after you've written code, continuously validating that you're on the right track. And I think we were not doing a good job in validating. And if I look at the first period when we started the company, I think those are probably the two main things. I think we were spot on with the market. I think we identified the need simply because we were building a product for ourselves, but also because we've talked with 
potential users, friends, gamers, and all that. So on that front, we were okay, but the execution was poor and decisions around focus on small steps was not <laughs> not good enough. Yeah, yeah. But like that early stage of you starting to build a company, like how did you yourself learn to become a company CEO from the early stages of the founding team to hiring to growing a company, which is now a much bigger company? I think at the beginning, what kept us going was being true to our mission and grit. Building a company is hard. And if you want to be successful building a company, I think grit is a great component that you need to have with you. Otherwise, it's extremely difficult and it's extremely hard to deal with problems and solve problems. And I think at the beginning, it was mostly this combination of the qualities of the different team members that we had that kept us going and allowed us to make so many mistakes, but still stay alive. Yeah. Of course, you have to be smart about making mistakes and you, you need to be concerned about making the same mistakes twice because otherwise, you know, you're not making any progress. But at the beginning, I think it was mostly based on trial and error and grit pushes forward. Mm. And what I started doing in the past few years, as I saw that sometimes these mistakes could be really, really expensive. And as, as I got exposed to more content and materials, I started reading a lot. So uh, they're really great books. I feel like we're living in a very fortunate era where a lot of entrepreneurs are now retired or they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And in between ventures, they might write a book about their lessons from the previous venture. And for me, reading those books, it's like golden nuggets. It's like all these insights that you learn while you hear about your day-to-day. Sometimes it just feels like this person has gone through the exact same journey you have, even if it's from a completely different industry. I recently read True Dog about the founder of Nike and his journey. And I found so many similarities to the things that we've experienced, although it's a completely different industry, because the entrepreneurial journey is sometimes is similar, eventually. And we all face very, very similar problems. And solutions are also quite similar. So through books and through being able to listen, identify what's relevant for you at any given time, and then pick up the one, two, three things that you're going to implement tomorrow, I think that has been super helpful for getting us where we are right now. Do you think like, what are the, the sort of the areas where you're growing right now that where you personally are looking to to kind of like, this is an area where I'm, where you're having interest at the moment? So I think, and that's especially true during COVID. And since we had to make so many switches and work from home and figure out how that's going to work. So I yeah. think that culture is a very significant thing that is super interesting and super impactful for how you build the business. Yeah. And leadership and management skills, uh, that's another one that's very very important. It's sometimes you know more pragmatic than culture and you know it's more process driven sometimes not always. But all of the components of management anywhere from planning, communication, giving feedback, how to give feedback and all those things are critical in building an organization particularly when a lot of people are working from home. And I think those are the two main verticals that are now super, super interesting for me. And you know, every new thing that I'm listening to, I get an idea. And then sometimes we would go and implement. Sometimes we would just put it in the parking lot. But I think those are where we are right now. Those are the two most interesting things for me. Hmm. How do you then approach the company culture building aspect of your work nowadays? How do you personally approach it? And how does your team 
like approach? How do you give ownership for company building, especially on the culture side? So I think the first thing we're doing is to talk about it. Mm. We talk about why it's important to have a defined culture. We talk about our core values, which are the elements of the culture. And we then kind of like you go to the gym and you do weights or you jog. We keep on practicing our culture in different events throughout the week or the year. Mm. Sometimes in creative processes, there are arguments and you know different people have different opinions and it's hard to get a decision. It's hard to come to a decision and you could go into very deep rabbit holes, having conversations with people and they might both be right, but then the solution sometimes rises up just from culture. I mean, let's think about our culture. Let's think about the right solution for our culture. And then it's like everybody, okay, you know, this is our common ground. So this is the solution. And although these three other ideas were pretty good, they're less of a fit to our culture. And this is why we're going to pick idea number four. Mm. That's one key thing in building and maintaining a culture, right? Defining values and just talking about it and routinely practicing it in every element of what we do. Even if it's swag, like company swag, you know, let's think about how we connect company swag to culture. And then we remind one of our values potentially with this. We've done it recently when we were working from home. We uh, had this program to help folks work on their home environment mm. with uh, equipment like cameras or a chair. And we kind of connected it to one of our core values, which is support main. So that's a small example. Nice. How do you come up with these behaviors that represent the, the values? Is it something that anybody in the company can bring it up? Do you like, involve the whole company in? creating behaviors that like strengthen the culture? How do you do that by bringing it to the ground floor in a sense? So our goal is to have everybody involved, but that's uh, sometimes hard because you need to have an ambassador for those things for it to become a part of the company. Especially with someone that just joined the company, we can't really expect that person to represent the culture if they just joined yesterday. Mm-hmm. People in the company, so myself, HR, senior leadership, who are sort of the the spark for the culture. But then once someone's onboarded to the culture, we would expect them to do as well, right? So my expectation is for every team member to represent our culture at any given time so that even if I'm not in the room and there's, you know, this new person that just joined the company and two other or more veterans, the more veterans should be able to onboard the new person into our culture. So I think eventually in an ideal world, every team member can represent the culture and can safeguard it. However, being pragmatic, there needs to be like a gym instructor, like HR and myself, senior leadership that keep on reminding people that, hey, this is, this is our culture and this is what we do, right? So this is how I'm thinking about that. Like, you know, in an ideal world, for sure, everybody, but we don't live in an ideal world and there needs to be, you know, folks who are responsible for maintaining the culture. Do you think like in hard times, for instance, like if certain things don't go right, the launch doesn't work out, like those kind of challenging moments, basically those build the culture. If you're not proactive, it it can be whatever it becomes. Do you feel that there's any challenges that you're facing when you're thinking about the culture building? So challenges in culture building or uh, was the question about how is culture impacted in hard times? Yeah, I think it's you can never like avoid all sorts of hard times. But like, yeah. do you think there's 
other challenges besides having those hard times that come up suddenly? And what are the challenges when you're having good times? So I think challenges appear all the time. Like every day is full of its own micro problems. Sometimes they're not so micro. And it could be something internal to the company. It could be something related to teamwork. It could be something external to the company, something with our partners. So we're, we're all full of problems. Yeah. I think the, the part that culture plays in facing all these challenges and it gives us like a, a stronghold, like something you can lean on as you're facing these challenges. I can't remember what the exact phrasing is, but I think it's something that comes from uh, Navy SEALs. And they're saying when the sea is rough, you do two things. You maintain course and you hold on to something. Hmm. And, you know, a sea is rough and startup life could be, hey, we just have a crisis with this big partner or there's a PR fiasco or there's like a gazillion other issues. So, you know, you hold the ship and you maintain course. For us, it means let's stay true to our values. And we'll figure out what the solution is as a derivative of our values and our thinking and not just reactive, impulsive decisions. If I go back to the rough sea example, you don't like, oh, I see shore, change course immediately. And then you hit a stone and, you know, your ship sinks. That's probably not a good idea. If you had a plan and you believe in that plan, you think it's good, hold course, grab onto something and um, let your culture guide you. So I think this is the function that culture provides in uh, when the seas run. Mm. How do you want to see you and the team evolving as the company grows to meet new challenges? And we've talked about this uh, a few times internally. We want to build a great organization. And we want to build an organization that is the, the best place to come to every morning and to do your best and to uh, fulfill your professional destiny. And make sure you're not wasting your time, but you're contributing from yourself to the world, to your community, to the company, and to yourself. And I think this is just an ongoing goal that we would uh, never get to. And I want, as an organization, I want us to continue being challenged, never be satisfied. Uh, I feel like we live in a world of constant improvement, basically until we die. Uh, so it's like an asymptote, you know, the the graph would never meet its goal. You, mm. It would never be legendary, but yep. you can always strive to be legendary. And this is the state of mind. I would like myself, the company, you know, everybody working here in the organization to be at in any given day. Yeah, I think that's that's what really creates the issue with like building companies is that, or building any kind of like creative endeavor where there is never really this overnight success, but you can always have the overnight failure in a sense. So like when you're talking about the curve, never really hitting that place, but it's then it becomes so much about the journey, doing something together that has meaning. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, the journey is the goal. I mean, look at big companies that you thought are at the peak of the mountain and now things like start to get shaky and nobody knows where those companies will end up in, you know, in five to 10 years, probably not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, it's especially in our industry. It's a bad thing to, in my opinion, to think that, you know, you're awesome and that's it. You know, you've done your thing now, you know, everybody got to work for me. No, it's not, it doesn't work this way. Yeah. And, and being at a state of mind of constant improvement, that's the way to live a life, in my opinion. Mm, totally agree. Uh, let's talk a bit about the games industry because the growth has been amazing this year due to certain circumstances but like 
we have some estimates are that we have three billion people now playing games globally. What are your kind of assumptions on where we're heading into and what things could look like in five years regarding what a gamer, like where are the big growth opportunities and things like that? So first, I think historically, even before digital games, everybody played games. You know, people play chess or checkers or soccer. People just like playing games. Mm. And digital games is just a new form of games. And online games is an evolution of the traditional digital games, etc. I think just playing games is natural to who we are as humans. And as technology advances and creation cycles get shorter and all these things, and as opportunities arise and new technologies enable new experiences, I think it's only going to grow. And we see it with uh, numbers. If uh, I like to compare when I was growing to now my 11-year-old, uh, son, when I was at his age, it was me and maybe two other guys that were playing games. That's it. Right now, there are probably only like three who are not playing games like Fortnite or Minecraft in a standard. Everybody yeah. else plays games, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's not going to change when he's going to grow a year older or two years older or 30 years older. And, you know, in the, what, what's the name of those places where old folks go to? <laughs> Nursing home. Nursing homes, yeah. So yeah. nursing homes, you know, in, in 20, 30 years, I don't, I don't necessarily think that people will play chess and cards. Yeah. They'll play online games. I mean, why not? Yeah. Um, League of Legends. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, maybe League of Legends might be too intense and maybe other games. But I think <laughs> if I grew up on League of Legends and I have the opportunity to meet like-minded people in a nursing home with, you know, high-quality stuff, uh, high quality yeah. gear we could play with and yeah. zero ping because like yeah. we're all on, it's a big lung party or something. Mm. For me, that feels a lot more fun than doing, you know, card games. So like, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I think the gaming industry is only going to increase because the people who are young right now, the percentage of gamers increases and the people that never play digital games are not very old. So, you know, they're kind of, you know, in last stages of their lives. Yeah. So I think eventually gaming, digital gaming, will, every human on earth will game. Mm. And the whole thing about like consuming the gaming content through YouTube, all sorts of Twitch platforms, whatnot. It's just, it's not only about you interacting with the game, but it's consuming it in a different kind of way, like which probably already existed. Like when we were kids, like in the 90s and and you had like magazine, like gaming magazines, which was another yep. way to consume gaming. Yep. Uh, it's, it's a part of the culture that media is kind of like becoming more part of gaming even now than ever. I agree. The content is going to be more available, which just built momentum into this gaming flywheel, right? When mm-hmm. I open ESPN and I see esports, I'm like, oh, nice. You know, that did not exist a few years back. Yep. Yeah, so I agree. It's just it completes kind of gaming's all around us instead of just when I play. So I agree. Yeah, and esports is so early. Like what yep. what is possible there? Just to get the dynamics and the economics right. And yeah, do you have like because you guys are sort of like in the midst there at Overwolf in this kind of like the industry shift? What is your approach to capture most of this industry growth? 
we're in the business of providing value for gamers and game developers that game developers never get to. Mm. When you have a game, it's very difficult to do everything, focusing on playability, focusing on how great your game's going to be, on lore, on graphics, on performance. It's very hard to do both that and all these other things like game capture or highlights or stats. And we've learned this the hard way, right? In our journey when we started, it's really hard to do everything at once. And we kind of provide to these game developers an opportunity for UGC as a service, sort of, right? Like if you think about Unity or Unreal, both are engines that provide you a certain service and help you get your game out there and succeed. And what we're providing is like an engine that saves all the difficult parts of managing a creator's community. For example, if you wanted to build a creator community for your game, you probably need to put someone on content moderation after you define your policy. Check out that there are no IP infringements or nobody's building something that breaks your game. You'd have to think about creator payouts because this becomes an ecosystem. So creators do expect at some point to make some sort of living from their creations. Yeah. And if there is such opportunity, they're going to create more content on your game. So we'll need to think about a business model for that, kind of like Roblox did. And Roblox had planned it from the ground up. But what if your game is very different? Like what if you're doing like an open world game, an adventure game, like an RPG? It's very difficult to have that game from the ground up built as a creator platform. How do you provide analytics for creators? You know, all those things we provide as an engine for mm. game developers. And this is, I think, the world that we're, this is our job. You know, a two-sided marketplace where on one hand, gamers can discover and download content from, but on the other, third-party creators can create content for the games. And we're, our job is to reduce barriers, both for gamers, but mostly for creators, enabling them the environment to build content around games. Yeah, in a sense, like the, the whole, the idea of the creators, like building sort of like an ecosystem of creators in gaming who could make a living by creating the content for these games like it's just starting off with the the Robloxes of the world but like like how do you take that towards more like casual gaming um, it's super interesting because the whole the model of like you have services like Substack Medium where writers can make a living by basically just writing articles and newsletters yep. you know YouTube's a great place or Twitch where mm. content creators that create video entertainers they make a living off of uh, the content they create. We're, we're kind of like YouTube, but for coders. Yeah. And we already have, you know, people making anywhere from zero to a few hundred thousand dollars per month from their gaming app. Yeah. Right now, through the first project acquisition, we hope to do a similar thing to the modding world. And we do think that Minecraft, although you can't sell Minecraft mods, there are mm-hmm. many different ways that you can monetize as a creator on Minecraft. For example, server hosting or... Yes being an affiliate or something like that, or through advertising, which is allowed based on terms of service, or through subscriptions, like kind of like Spotify, right? Imagine that you would need to pay royalties to every artist. Yeah. That's kind of hard. Now Spotify provides you that service. Yeah. And you know, we could do a very similar thing in Overwolf where a single subscription can allow you to donate to all of the creators building the mods, which will eventually create more mods, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that's kind of like where the the most value will be created 
for like opening up new ways of facilitating people to make a living from gaming. Yeah. 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 Can you talk about the next things that are coming up for Overwolf? Yeah. So we've been very busy in the past few years um, building gaming apps as a profession for third-party creators and thinking about everything that a creator would need and just solving those problems one after the other, anywhere from real-time telemetry, like which weapon I'm currently using for games, through an API, analytics, installation, et cetera, et cetera. So we worked on figuring that out. And then earlier this year, we've announced that we've acquired CurseForge, which is a two-sided marketplace for mods this time, not for apps. And this is our first step getting into the mods world, which we always wanted to do, but based on the lessons that we've learned, we didn't want to do it prematurely. We felt that now's the time for us to do that move. Mm. And we're going to work very hard in the next few years on figuring out how to do that. Because mods and apps are not created equal, there's subtleties and differences and uh, IP considerations. And for example, modding is a lot more collaborative as a creation environment. Maybe that's the right combination. Yeah. Comparing to apps, because you know there are mod packs, for example, if you look at Minecraft. Yeah. You take uh, a work many people did, remix it, and now it's your own work. So mm. how do you, on the one hand, get rewarded for the remix that you've done, but also reward the original authors? There are a lot of things to consider as you're getting into that. And I think it's going to be a long journey, but I'm very excited towards it. And I think uh, if we're able to figure it out, I'm very optimistic we will. There's a lot of goodness that could come out of that for gamers, for creators, and game developers. Mm. Yeah, it definitely feels like that's the area of the biggest growth in the next five to 10 years. Like, what are the, the kind of like the metrics and the KPIs that you guys are looking at? when the growth is starting to happen and how do you how do you build product market fit to understand where you're taking our services product market fit is determined for us by you know purely retention mm. and retention curves and KPIs we care about is uh, like in our north uh, star on how we're building the company there's uh, the number of creators who are making more than $1000 a month and the number of creators who are making more than $10000 a month nice because we feel like it might feel cynical to look at money as a you know, derivative for quality, but in our world, if someone has shitty products, they're not making any money. And money is where quality mixes with uh, value and product market fit. Yeah. Because especially if you're making money off of ads, if nobody's using your app, you're not making anything. Yeah. But if uh, you're making, say, $10, it means that Performance is good because otherwise everyone would immediately uninstall. And there's product market fit. Otherwise, no one would have checked your app. The value prop makes sense because otherwise no one would have discovered your app. You know, it kind of checks all the boxes of how do you measure quality. And if we only did it with, you know, second week active users or how many active users are on day 30th and all that, I think we would be missing some of the elements. So this is how we're looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, like how I hear it is that like you guys have a really clear reason to exist in gaming because like if you're measuring the number of people who are making a living through creating content, like if you can increase that, that means that the whole industry is going basically up with the yep. tide. So it's, it's really well aligned KPI to have a, a meaningful mission for sure. I have an example. I uh, Every new year, I like to just write a few notes for our team and 
talk about where we are and, you know, say thank you and all that. And uh, I want to share my screen and show you. I know, obviously, listeners cannot see the screen, but I want to just yeah, read I can, one paragraph. If you want to uh, share this later, I can put it on the podcast site. Okay, yeah, happy to do that. And uh, what I wrote is, uh, once there were carpenters, master builders, and bakers, then lawyers, doctors, and factory workers. And after that, software developers, YouTubers, and streamers. Now there's a new profession in the world, which we call in-game creators. In-game creators are creating gaming apps and mods and make a living doing so. And there are a couple other things. But I think this is really what we're doing. We're providing a framework for these in-game creators to make a living and thus building a new profession. And so everyone benefits, right? Gamers, they get more content. Creators, they can do what they love. Yeah. And that's priceless, right? Exactly. And then game developers benefit from that as well because people are creating cool content around their games. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you guys are enabling this whole like making a living in a sense, like for so many people that, yeah, it's awesome. Hey, Yuri, I have some final questions for you. You yeah. mentioned already some books already, but what's your all-time book recommendation for another entrepreneur? And why would that be the book? Sure. So first, I want to say it's a very, very hard question because I feel like I read many books and it's hard to pick. It's like, saying who your favorite kid is because I feel like every book gave me something and all of those lessons were very valuable. And uh, now that we got that <laughs> out of the door, yeah. there's one book that was very special for me because it was both very insightful, but also very, very fun to listen to. So it has, it has a very, very good mix of value and fun to the extent that sometimes I would arrive home and just stay at the parking lot a little bit more to you know listen to what's going to happen and, and it's a book that i haven't read i listened to it on uh, audible and the name of the book is the five dysfunctions of a team mm. um i don't know if you've listened to it it talks yeah. about teamwork and what's extremely special about it in my opinion is just this very unique mix between value and fun and i think everywhere where there is not just fun, not just value, but there's the mix. This is where magic happens. And to me, that's, this book was uh, magical. So this would be my recommendation. Yeah. yeah, it's a totally different kind of business book because it's so like, it's a story. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a fictional story, I believe, which really like sounds like something that really happened. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good. Do you have a, a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? So in the early stages of the company, we had an M&A conversation, an acquisition conversation that ended up not maturing. The process itself took about a year. And it was back after we've launched our first version of the product and we were constantly pivoting between a gazillion ideas. At that point, we were so blinded by this uh, M&A opportunity because you know, we just came out to the market. We were shocked that anyone even cared not to talk about wanting to buy the company. And we kind of turned that into our mission in many ways. So we kind of neglected the core thing that we were supposed to do. And we focused way too many resources on the conversation with the potential acquirer. Yeah. And for those of you that listen, I want to say this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Mm. Because I think when you're building a company, you cannot afford to the risk of losing and when you spend so much time dealing with a conversation like this, 
and not with your core business, if the conversation ends up not happening, then you're basically screwed, which happened to us. No. And the way that shaped the way I think about things today is I make sure that we're on course and conversations come and go, but we, we maintain our course and we stay true to our values and we take the company where it needs to go without where we think it needs to go without making changes as, as a result of these type of external interferences. I mean, sure, we would definitely change course if we think, you know, the team, the leadership team, we get feedback from the market, we need to pivot, we would for sure change course. But if someone external comes to you and wants you to do other things or starts distracting you with, you know, weird conversations, engaging is could be very dangerous. So depending on how you engage. But if you turn it into your day job, you're putting a huge risk on the company. And this is a mistake that this is another scar I have here on my shoulder, you know, yeah. with one of the mistakes I've done. So I think that that would be one of the things that shaped how I work today. That's a good one for sure. Hey, as the final question for you, Yuri, how can people get in contact with you if they want to hear more about your entrepreneurial like skill, like those learnings, like if there's entrepreneurs thinking about building a company or like they want to know more about Overwolf? How could they reach you? Sure. So the best thing would actually be email. So URI, just like my, my first name, and then at overwolf.com. Mm. And ideally, provide a bit of context uh, in the email and uh, like what's the context, how you heard, and uh, what are you looking to achieve. And I will eventually follow up. I know that email is uh, sometimes uh, slow, but I eventually answer everything. So uh, as long as that is detailed, that's great. You can also try Twitter at Uri Marchand, but emails preferred. Cool. Thanks, Uri. This was great. Hope cool. you have a good day there. And let's talk soon again, man. Thanks very much, Joachim. Had Thanks. fun uh, doing this. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Yuri, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please follow or do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com, where we have a lot of material regarding gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.